0: We'll begin with verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her I've lost count of the number of times I've said to a young couple, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In fact, I've said before that one of my, I don't know if it's a deep regret, but one of my very real regrets in my ministry is that I have kept better records of how many times I've said that and how many knots I have tied in, in a wedding ceremony. From time to time, I'll have some young couple or maybe now not so young, come to me at a lectureship or in a gospel meeting and say, do you remember us? You you did our wedding ceremony. And I say, I hardly remember my own. But anyway, that's not important. And I've happily watched that couple as they've gone out of the church building to start their brand new life together. And I really wish that I could tell you this morning that every one of those relationships, every one of those marriages had a storybook ending. You know the one that reads, and they both lived happily ever after. But you and I know that reality dictates that that simply is not the case. I think every preacher has had the experience of having one of those couples, or more, more than one, sadly, come to him some months or years later, and they need some help. Uh, there are cracks in the foundation of that marriage. Things were not going well, and there have been sometimes ten years later when they are on the brink of divorce. I saw a story online not long ago that a couple made that decision at the reception. I don't have to tell you that that's not God's plan. God designed marriage for a specific reason, and the overriding idea that God had behind that reason is for our good and for our happiness. And I hope we understand that, and I hope that stays in your minds, in the forefront of your minds as we talk about marriage this morning. I want to talk about what the Bible says about marriage, and if you're married or if you're contemplating marriage, I think that the time that we spend together in this lesson will be a wise and very valuable investment. After all, when you buy a car, think about it this way. There's an owner's manual. Some of you don't know this. There's an owner's manual probably in, in the dash pocket. And, and, and that means that the manufacturer who made that automobile, they ought to know best about you know, how that thing runs and how it will best operate. And so the wise car owner is going to acquaint himself with the owner's manual. What I'm saying to you this morning is in a very similar way that the person who really wants to succeed in his or her marriage is, is going to become acquainted with the divine owner's manual. Because God is the one, is his idea, that's going to be one of the things we're going to be talking about, that we get married in the first place. And so with that in mind, uh, it, is, it only makes sense that we see what God has to say about this important subject. In this study, I want us to encapsulate the, the major things that God's word says about marriage. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover every single nuance. But specifically, the Bible gives three basic facts about marriage and four basic purposes Of marriage, And I want us to look at those in turn uh, very quickly this morning. The three basic foundational facts of marriage are set forth primarily in two sections of Scripture. And the first one, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, when God instituted marriage between Adam and Eve. If you've got your Bible, you might want to look at Genesis chapter 2. And after the creation week, when God had created woman as a helper suitable for Adam... The Bible says in Genesis 2 verse 18, even before he had created Eve, he looked at his creation and here's what he said. It is not good that the man, of course, there was only one man, that would have been Adam, that the man be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then there's Jesus' discussion of marriage over in Matthew 19. If you got your Bible, turn there for just a moment. Matthew chapter 19. And and here's where he basically retraces marriage's God-given purpose Since the beginning of time. And I want to specifically to look at verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees also came to him, that is Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? By the way, if you want to pose a trick question to anyone, especially a teacher, as Jesus was, ask them a question about divorce. And that's what they did. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you... To divorce your wives, but from the beginning was not so. And I say to you, verse 9 says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality or fornication and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who was divorced commits adultery. These teachings help us to understand what God's concept of marriage was from the very beginning. Here are the three foundational facts about marriage that can emerge from these scriptures. Number one, marriage is divine in establishment, and we need to understand that, and we need to act accordingly. It was God who designed marriage. It's God who joins man and woman together as a husband and a wife. I think some are under the impression that this is just kind of a social construct. That someone along the line said, well, I think it would be a good thing if we actually had marriage license and that uh, we got together and had a ceremony and validated that license and we call this thing marriage. No, no man did that. The Bible says at the beginning of time, God is the one who has instituted marriage. So it's an act, a decree of God, not man. We need to get that on straight. Now, I understand that all the legal requirements for marriage can be handled down at the courthouse. You know, you can go to a one office and a couple can pick up their marriage license there. And if they don't want to bother with anything more than that, then they can go down the hallway and have a justice of the peace validate that license with a brief ceremony. And that satisfies the legal technicalities, at least in our country. But it certainly does not give the whole picture. You see, in marriage, two persons are entering into a totally new relationship and I think sometimes couples do not fully understand that this is a brand new relationship it's different than anything you've ever experienced before and it should be different before marriage watch this carefully before marriage that husband and wife belonged to the families from which they came but now that they've entered into the marriage relationship after marriage they belong to one another That is the primary responsibility and the primary relationship that they now have. A brand new family has been created. Their relations and their duties to one another supersede their duties to everyone else on the face of the planet. And I've talked to some people who've been married for years, and they still don't have that on straight. I no longer have mom and dad as my primary relationship and my primary responsibility. That doesn't mean that you never listen to what mom and dad say to you anymore, even about your marriage. But it does mean that you have a relationship that supersedes every other earthly relationship. And if we need to take notes on that, let's do that. Again, I remind us that this arrangement is not man's work. It's an act of God. Little wonder that Jesus said in the text in Matthew 19 that we read a moment ago, what therefore God has joined together. Let not man put asunder or let not man separate. The message that Jesus was presenting there is clear. We dare not tamper with something that God has created. Now, some are suggesting in our day that marriage is on the way out, that we have outgrown it, that it is antiquated, it has become obsolete, or at the very least, it ought to be redefined. The one man, one woman for one lifetime concept is primitive, some people say. But I'm telling you this morning, with all the power that I know how, that the flaws in the marriage relationship in 2019 are not in the design, they are in the personnel. When we understand that, it will help us to look in ourselves And not at the social construct or other people's expectations. We need to get it on straight fundamentally that marriage is divine in establishment. It is in fact God made. That is a matter of biblical record. Second, marriage is supreme in earthly involvement. We've implied that but I need to go back and run over it again. The the husband-wife relationship is the most important, most sacred of earthly relationships. There is no other human relationship that equals it. Now, I know that you're thinking just now that the qualifier earthly is important, and you're right about that. Our primary relationship and our primary responsibility is, of course, with the God who made us. And we must always obey God rather than man. Acts 5 verse 29 makes that clear. So if my husband or wife demands that I do something that is in clear violation of the will of God, guess who I need to obey? Not my husband or my wife. I need to obey God. So with that understanding in mind, we have to again emphasize that this supersedes every other earthly relationship. And the obligations that come with that relationship are also greater than any other relationship or obligation that I have to anyone else on the planet. Jesus is the one who said, as we noted a moment ago, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it is supreme in its earthly involvement. In the third place, the Bible teaches that marriage is unconditional in commitment. To use the Bible's concept, it is, as sometimes our vows read, until death do us part. Romans chapter 7 makes that clear. The the marriage vows most often used state something along the lines of, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in adversity and in prosperity. And I know that there have been people who are in a troubled marriage who said, yes, but I didn't think it would be this worse. And, And we understand that. There are sometimes troublesome times in a marriage relationship. Sometimes there are differences of opinion. Sometimes there's differences of judgment. Sometimes there's questions about should we ever have made, formed this relationship at all. I understand all of that. But God is telling us that once that commitment has been made, once we have determined that we are going to exchange these vows or some like them, that we understand that this is a strong, strong commitment. It is, in fact, an unconditional commitment. Landis and Landis, in their well-known Building a Successful Marriage, that's the title of the book, say this. I want to share just one brief paragraph, if I may, with you. One of the important elements in the pattern of successful marriage is the commitment of the partners to a permanent union. Successful marriages do not result if people go into marriage with reservations. I hope you heard that. When couples go through the marriage ceremony, they are contracting for a lifetime of cooperation in all areas of living. Successful cooperation is not possible when limitations are set upon it. End quote. I think they're exactly right about that. Through everything that comes, husband and wife belong to one another as long as they live. That's God's plan. Then let's look at the four biblical purposes of marriage. I think that will help clarify Especially if you're contemplating, if you're thinking about getting married this morning, I hope that these will help you to understand what marriage is for. I think the problem with some marriages is they don't know what marriage is for. They don't understand that marriage is not just supposed to be playtime. It isn't, you know, a date where, where we're just going to have fun. No, there's responsibilities, and there is fun, there is happiness, there is peace. At least that's a part of God's plan. But we've got to clarify what God expects of marriage. What is the purpose of marriage since God designed it? And since Christianity, since Christianity is first and foremost an individual's relationship to God, I think we all understand what Paul meant in Romans fourteen twelve when he said everyone will give an account of himself before God. That means someday I'm going to be judged, you're going to be judged as if you were the only person who ever lived. You're not going to be judged on anyone else's merits, only on your own. If that's the case, then why did he create the church? Well, God had a reason for the church. And we understand that if we've read this book. Since life is primarily what an individual makes of it, why did God ever decide that anybody ought to get married? Because we need each other. That's the basic idea. The Bible gives four basic purposes for marriage, and that's the first one, companionship. After God created man, we noted a moment ago from Genesis 2 and verse 18, God looked down at man and said, It is not good. That the man should be alone. That was his first observation when man entered the scene in the Garden of Eden. He had only created one fella at that point, and it was Adam. And he looked down, and then he allowed Adam to purvey the animal kingdom and to name them, and most agree that a part of that exercise was to help Adam understand that there was nothing in, in the animal kingdom that was suitable for him in terms of companion. Dogs are wonderful but they are not life companions. They are not like you. They cannot share deep commitments, feelings, and communication the way human beings can do that. So no wonder, God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Clearly then, the first purpose purpose for marriage in the mind of God was to provide that kind of companionship. Here's a lesson. When either the husband or the wife fail to be a real companion in that marriage relationship, There's a crack in the foundation of that marriage. And so if you're married this morning, I want to ask you that question. Are you providing that kind of companionship to your husband or wife? Here's a second purpose. By by the way, before we leave that, companionship involves a few things that I need to mention. But I, I want to focus here on what I believe is the most neglected area in most marriages. And that's one of the things we talked about in class this morning. At least the class in the back. And that's communication. Real communication, real companionship demands effective communication. We've got to talk to one another and mark it down. If there is no communication, there's no real companionship. My friend Charlie Boddy has said, I I know this because I heard him and I took notes. He said 100% of all troubled marriages have communication problems. I believe that's right. And if you can communicate with one another, I've often said if you can communicate in a marriage... There is no problem that cannot be solved. If you're not communicating, there is no problem that can be solved. Communication is absolutely vital. The Old Testament prophet Amos once asked, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, one of the major reasons many husbands and wives are not in agreement is simply because there is no communication. They're not really talking to one another, and they're not talking about the deep issues of life. A well-known psychologist who specializes in marriage counseling has estimated that in more than half of the married couples that he sees because their marriage is troubled has reached what he calls, and I'm quoting now, the nearly silent stage in their marriage relationship. That is, they're rarely talking to each other. They may talk at one another. They may talk in one another's presence. But they're not really talking heart to heart, face to face with each other. I Often tell young couples in pre-marriage meetings that after they're married that uh, those things that when they were dating would supply as, and would work well as springboards for communication after marriage oftentimes are simply turned off with a grunt or a nod. You know some of you going to remember how, that, how deeply, what kind of conversations that you had during your dating years. Are you still doing that as husband and wife is the question we need to be asking ourselves. And so if a marriage is going to be successful, couples have to, to guard against this non-communication pitfall. And, and if you need to write that down this morning as a husband or a wife, I hope you will and remember it. See, when there are problems, as there's certain to be, the lines of communication have to be kept open. But often that's the very time when couples tend to, to, to withdraw and sulk And that's deadly. Time spent not communicating is damaging. Resentments fester, and they will eventually grow poisonous. The the imagination invents things far worse than anything that could actually happen. Untended wounds tend only to get deeper, so we need to be communicating. I I hope that I've communicated that well this morning. The Bible says, for example, and here's some practical advice in every relationship, But it certainly works specifically in the marriage relationship. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it said, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. One man heard that in a marriage seminar about you never ought to go to bed if you're angry with one another and that that issue has gone unresolved. He said, We haven't slept in 11 days. Well, that's that's not what Paul had in mind. But he is saying, You don't let it fester. You don't let the sun go down until you've talked about that problem. You've at least tried. You've addressed the issue, and you've tried to resolve the conflict or whatever it is between you. In fact, J.B. Phillips translates that verse this way, never go to bed angry, don't give the devil that kind of foothold. I think that's practical and it certainly is applicable to the marriage relationship, that's especially good advice for those of us that are husbands and wives, and I think that we would all agree. You see, two people can withdraw from each other so completely, then in effect, that separation has actually already taken place even though they may still be living in the same house under the same roof. Companionship is vitally important to any marriage. If she or he was your friend when you married her or him, Do everything in your power to keep it that way. Even do things that will help to cultivate and nurture that friendship. So you need to stay friends once you're married. Some people need to understand that. And this kind of companionship has an immense influence not only on our happiness now in this life, Actually, being married to someone that you like and you can truly say is your best friend, but also in terms of its eternal destiny, watch this carefully. Physical intimacy is only one aspect of the marriage relationship. The greatest responsibility, folks, taken on in marriage is spiritual in nature. Are you hearing me, church? The greatest responsibility taken on in our marriage relationship is spiritual in nature. You see, whether your life companion grows closer to God or whether they grow farther away from God depends to a large degree on you. Augustine said that the final purpose of marriage is, and I quote, that the one may bring the other with him to heaven. And I hope everyone under the sound of my voice this morning whose marriage has, whose married has that in mind. I, I want to help my wife. I want to help my husband go to heaven. I want to be a spiritual helpmeet to them. I want us to have the whole package. I want us to relate in every way. But I understand my primary responsibility is to do everything I can to help bring that person with me to heaven. But there's more to marriage than just companionship. Otherwise, God could have just created two men who could have been good buddies or two women who could have been best friends. That's propagation. That's the second purpose the Bible says that God had in mind when he designed marriage. After God created Adam and Eve, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and verse 28. By the way, you can't go any farther back in the Bible than that. When you get to Genesis chapter 1, folks, that's the springboard. That's the foundation of everything else that's to come. Here's what he said about that marriage relationship between Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28. He told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Only Adam and Eve could do that. Only the complementation of a husband and a wife can do that. Having children and then properly training those children then is one of God's beautiful purposes for marriage. Thirdly, it's protection. God designed marriage to protect us from temptation that will inevitably rise and to prevent immorality. Turn, if you will, for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want us to read a few verses together. By the way, if you haven't read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in its entirety lately, I would commend it to your reading before the day is over. But let's just look at verses 2. Actually start with verse 1 and down through verse 5. And and you'll get the idea of what Paul is going to be discussing for the rest of the chapter. Now concerning the things of which you wrote me, apparently the Corinthians had written a prior letter and asked Paul a bunch of questions. And so he's addressing some of those questions. He said, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual, here's the protection aspect, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. That's a spiritual responsibility that involves the flesh and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is writing these things to protect the marriage relationship but also to protect us as individuals. It's better to marry than burn. That is to burn with passion. And the only avenue, the only outlet that God has provided for the fulfillment of that fleshly desire, the biological desire that God put within all of us, is in the marriage relationship. We, we're living in a world that needs to hear that, folks. So that's a part of it. He gave us those physical desires. He expects, at least for most of humanity, some are going to choose not to marry. But for most, for those desires to be fulfilled. And he designed the marriage relationship as the only proper place. For that fulfillment. You know our sons and daughters need to hear that too don't they? Not just the world at large. Here's a fourth purpose that God had in mind for marriage. And that is to provide the foundation for the social order. Here's what I mean by that. Ephesians 5 from which our text came a moment ago. Don read a few verses from Ephesians 5. Let me in tandem with my last recommendation say this. If you haven't read Ephesians 5 in this entirety lately. That is recommended reading as well. It's powerful stuff. By the way, let me give you this quick Bible Fundamentals 101 lesson. Paul's primary objective in Ephesians chapter 5 was not to talk about marriage. It was to talk about the church and Christ's close relationship to it. But the only thing that he could think of that came close to Christ's close relationship to his church, one in which Christ was willing to actually die for his people, is to say it's it's a lot like marriage. And then he began to give us some lessons on marriage that are extremely valuable. So if you haven't read Ephesians 5 lately, please do so. He gives us some construction... And some, some constructive advice about marriage and as, long, as well as some instructions. For example, he says the husband is the head of the family by God's decree and is to be respected as such. Listen to verse 22. The husband is the head of the wife. Verse 24. So let the wife be subject to her husband and everything. Now none of this has to do with superiority or inferiority. It has to do with the hierarchy of a responsibility. And every organization, every corporation, and, and even every marriage has to have someone who is going to be the head and take the ultimate responsibility for the decisions that are made in that relationship. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 33 says, the wife is to be loved by her husband. That's Paul's primary thrust in this chapter. Listen to these verses. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Isn't that a wonderful balance? Uh, wives, submit yourself to the authority of your husbands because God has placed them as the, as the spiritual leader in the home. Well, wait a minute. He can abuse that power and that authority. You're exactly right about that. But not if you take the other half of the chapter. If you understand what Paul's commands and instructions by inspiration to the husbands, there's not going to be a problem with the abuse of power in that relationship because he's to love his wife, he says. He says, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If he loves his wife enough that he would be willing to die for her, he's not going to use that as a power struggle. He's not going to abuse that relationship and that authority. Husbands, love your wives even as your own bodies, he said in verse 28. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, verse 33. You know, all of verse 33 gives us the balance that God wants in every home. Here's what he said. I I want us to, before we end... Look at all of verse 33 quickly. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's why for the last few months, Ed Redmond has been teaching back in the fellowship hall on Sunday mornings based on the book entitled Love and Respect. That's where that concept comes from. The husband is to love his wife. The wife is to respect her husband. That's the primary needs of both of those persons in that marriage relationship. I think the message is abundantly clear. The, the wife deserves that love. Her work can become routine and drab unless she knows that she is sincerely loved and appreciated. It's the smart woman who puts a glow around her duties and who makes her family feel like they are important, like they are the most valuable thing to her in the world. I once saw a note hanging above a kitchen sink in a country home that read like this, divine services conducted here three times daily. That was a kitchen sink. But there was a woman who had her head on straight. Now, she had other responsibilities, but she understood what her primary responsibility was at least at that point in her life, and that was to take good care of her family. It is an accurate description of the work that's to be done in the home. Now, here's where I want to end. There's a beautiful statement about Zechariah and Elizabeth that I think gives the real secret of a spiritually healthy marriage relationship. A, another page out of Bible Fundamental 101. Most of you know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were the mother and the father of John the Immerser. That tells you something the apple doesn't fall far from the tree—at least, not in that situation. But here's what the Bible says about John the Immerser's mother and father, speaking of their that, that husband and wife—they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments, commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Let me read that one more time, and I'm going to read it right this time. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances. Of the Lord blameless. That's the real key, isn't it? Both living a righteous life, both doing what God would have them to do, every aspect of His will for their lives. That is the dominant vitamin in a good marriage. If you're wondering this morning, how can I have a good, happy, constructive Christian home? It begins with you. If you're not a child of God this morning, we're going to sing a song of encouragement to encourage you to make this the moment when you turn your back on sin, turn your face to the Lord Jesus Christ, confess his name based upon your repentance of all your past sins, and we'll be delighted to baptize you in Christ this morning. You can leave here as a brand new creature in Christ with all of your transgressions, all of your sins, washed away by the blood of Jesus while we stand and while we sing.